I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. And we just kept piling on our negative call, piling on, and we felt incredibly vindicated when New Century filed. And you don't want anybody and all those people have lost their jobs. It sounds horrible. But that was the moment, the true telling that the housing market was crashing. Ivy Zellman is CEO of Zellman & Associates and is the top residential housing research analyst in the country. She just released the wonderful book, Gimme Shelter, which you can find on our website, leadingshe.com, in the recommended books area. The book profiles her career and life struggles on Wall Street and building her own company as she offers excellent advice for young professionals who are seeking career success. Ivy openly talks about what it was like to be a woman in the very male-dominated and cutthroat Wall Street environment. Against all odds, she has built her company through hard work and her ability to cultivate deep and meaningful relationships. She talks about how not all women help other women in their careers. Her assertiveness and direct communication style has contributed to her stellar reputation. Enjoy this wonderful podcast with Ivy Zellman. On Leading She today, my guest is Ivy Zellman, CEO and founder of Zellman & Associates, which has been in business since October of 2007. Zellman & Associates is a leading housing research firm serving institutional and private equity investors and corporate executives nationwide. Ivy recently sold her company to Walker & Dunlop. For years, uh, Ivy worked in New York City on Wall Street and worked with Credit Suisse First Boston for nine years. Uh, Before that, she was an analyst with Solomon Brothers in the 90s, uh, which became Solomon Smith Barney and ultimately part of Citigroup. Ivy's specialty is the residential housing market. She recently released a book, Gimme Shelter, which I have read and highly recommend. It's a very well-written book, and uh, welcome uh, to the podcast, Ivy. Thanks for having me, Susan. It's very exciting. Yeah. There's a quote uh, from Ivy about the book. Uh, I was driven by a desire to share my story of how I succeeded on Wall Street against all odds. My hope is that an honest and open account would prove helpful to young adults pursuing their dreams with the same determination I felt for so many decades. So, and I relate to that. That's the reason I started the podcast is really to allow women to tell their stories. I tell my story and uh, hopefully it would help. It will help others. And I think it is. I think your book is helping others and hopefully my podcast is. So it's fantastic. A couple of highlights. In the publication Barron's, Ivy was named as one of the top 100 women in U.S. finance. She was ranked uh, number one Wall Street investment analyst, Hall of Famer by Institutional Investor, uh, and she predicted the top of the housing market that led to the Great Recession and the bottom of the housing market in 2012. She provided mortgage crash research for Michael Lewis's best-selling book, Turn Movie, The Big Short. She is uh, seen as the expert's expert on housing research with TV appearances on CNBC, Bloomberg, and TD Ameritrade Network featured in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Ivy has been called a blunt-speaking, bearish analyst with a knack for spotting signs of trouble. I like that. I'm not always bearish. I'm not always bearish, but no, you, know. you, you gotta you gotta say you know that you're at the bottom. I mean, when you say you're at the bottom in 2012, there's you know right. that's that's being more of a bull, I suppose. Yes. Um, 
But I love the book. You're a wonderful writer. Uh, we did put it on our leadingshe.com recommended book so people can find it there. Uh, well, thank you. Yeah. So I related, um, I'm going to turn it over to you in a second, but I just related so much to you um, in the book. My career is about 40 years in length, so I'm older than you. I began in the early 80s. As I read the book, I was considering where you were at any point in time in the 90s and then kind of where I was at any point in time. Um, but uh, your experience uh, as being a career woman, a mother, uh, and I also found my niche and became an expert in my field and an ex expert. Uh, we both founded our own companies, ran them, you run yours, and we both sold them to large companies. Um, you love to play golf like I do. Uh, you approach things as being one of the guys, and uh, you outworked your competitors and associates. So <laughs> we have a lot in common. I think we could probably hang, uh, have a good time. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, you named the book Gimme Shelter, which is somewhat of a double entendre with Gimme Shelter Housing and the name of a Rolling Stones song. And uh, I'm a Rolling Stones uh, uh, fan, too. I love classic rock, so we have that in common, too. Yeah, uh, uh, exactly. Yeah. You can go rock out together. Yeah, we could. I saw them in Columbus in 2005. Uh, I don't know if you made that concert, but it was it was a good one. I saw them at the Meadowlands in 19, and um, unfortunately, I was scheduled in Cleveland to go in June of 20, but obviously, COVID shut that down. Yes. But I'm, I'm a huge fan. Yes, indeed. Good seen them many times. Yes. Good, uh, good concert. Um, so let's, uh, let's start with uh, talking about your career. You, um, Wall Street, you know, can be cutthroat, uh, very, very competitive. You thrive there. Talk about the highlights of your career, the book. Um, you know, just uh, give us give us kind of a thumbnail sketch of what um, you know some highlights and and talk about why you wrote the book. Oh, that's a big one. Um, well, to start, I think that for me, I really just as a I don't know young college kid that unfortunately my father's career um, took a turn south and. I had experienced um, what I thought was that we were rich, actually, but we weren't. We were just probably, um, you know, maybe a little bit um, more wealthy than a middle income, but it felt like we were fluent. And when I was on my own and, and sort of forced to go to night school and work full time, I was like, I want to be rich. I want to, I never want to have to worry about money. And I was working at Arthur Young as a secretary, now Ernst & Young. And all these accountants, I was always asking them, you know, do you like your job? What do you do? And they're like, you know what? you really need to go work on Wall Street. I'm like, what, what's Wall Street? And I went to a state university, George Mason, that no one ever heard of until we went to the Final Four many years later. And Wall Street didn't recruit at George Mason. So I became extremely determined that this was the place I had to work and would pretty much ask any person that could breathe, you know, whether it be at a gym or people at Arthur Young, can you help me? Can you help me get an interview at, you know, Wall Street? So really just getting the job, what George Mason literally put my picture in the, you know, school newsletter. And I was the first student to ever get a job in Wall Street. So it was quite an accomplishment. And, you know, I was told to go work in investment banking. And, you know, when people say they're interested in finance, you know, one of the things I'd like to share with them right now is, well, that's really broad. Like, like, can we narrow it down? Because that could be like 50 different, you know, categories. And at the time, people just said, you got to work in investment banking. So I did, wasn't even a question. That's where 
I guess it was the hottest part of the call it overall mosaic. And um, I fortunately did get that job in investment banking and I thought I was done. You know, my dream had come true. I was going to be in investment banking. And when I went to go work in investment banking, it was a rude awakening because it was a two year um, unbelievable, ruthless program where you worked, you know, hundred hour weeks. And frankly, they treated you like crap. And I don't know if I, don't know if I could swear because I swear a lot, but um, I would just say that it was a rude awakening for me. You know, when I was at Arthur Young and working as administrative assistant, and they eventually made me into what we called a professional intern, where it was more of a, a call it professional role, whatever, from secretarial. You know, if my boss asked me on a Friday to do something and I gave it to him on Monday, he was so grateful. And at Solomon Brothers, you know, if you were asked to do something on Friday, it better be done what Friday. And right. even if you had to pull an all nighter. So, you know, all of a sudden it was like I was pretty deflated because I didn't like investment banking. And, you know, I, there were many nights of tears. And I would just say that going from investment banking when I eventually moved to equity research and I really found my calling. Most of the investment bankers are like, oh, you don't want to go work in equity research. They're just a bunch of monkeys. They just write what managements tell them to. But I really found my niche and, and I loved it. I think it's like being a detective and being able to uncover aspects of what makes you know companies uh, better than others. So I, I think that just starting my career, um, it felt like I went from a high to a low pretty quickly and then had to readjust and reconfigure. And I think one of the messages I always tell young um, people, young women and men is that your first job won't be your last likely, you know? And so just know that, you know, it doesn't just because you, you accept a job doesn't mean that you have to stay there forever. And the likelihood is that you'll navigate and figure out what you like and don't like, um, but encourage people to do a little more homework than I did. You know, I didn't really dig in to understand what investment banking was. And so that's really some of the things that, you know, I would suggest uh, as people contemplate what career they're pursuing. But I don't know, highlights of my career, gosh, um, you know, at Solomon Brothers early on, um, I was as a young analyst and, and following the housing market, no one cared about housing. I remember the sales force used to tell me, you know, you cover, you know, four stocks that are worth less than, or the market values are worth, you know, less than a half a percent of the S&P. Nobody cares. So it was really hard to get airtime and get people to pay attention to me. And it's interesting because institutional investors as client salespeople would service their biggest clients, they really only want to show their best analysts. So they don't even support you until you've proven that you're any good. And it's only when the clients start telling them that you're good, that then the Salesforce, you know, circular reference, they'll start to support you. So I got some traction early on. And a lot of it was just reaching out to clients and asking a lot of questions and not just giving my spiel. Um, but my claim to fame was calling the top of the housing market. And that was when I was at Credit Suisse in 2005. Um, I did have also prior to that, a big call I made was being negative on the companies that were exposed to asbestos. And that was I'm trying to remember that was really at still at Credit Suisse, but that was like in 2000, um, you know, probably in the late nineties when I was at Solomon Brothers, I think I was just known for being very assertive. You know, I think men called me a bitch, but I was assertive. <laughs> I They would call me aggressive bitch, but I was actually just not afraid to ask questions and, you know, really speak my mind. And I've mm -hmm. always been like that. I think maybe it was growing up in Long Island, New York and going to public schools that yeah. toughened me up or being one of three sisters. But 
um, really why I wrote the book and kind of skip it all over the place. Um, so jump in and interrupt me. But I wrote the book because I felt compelled to share with people that you don't have to have, you know, the traditional background, you know, go to an Ivy League school or, you know, the best in class schools to make a successful career in Wall Street come to fruition. And that there are, are ways to navigate through could what could be choppy waters and maybe my story will help them and encourage them. But also like you, Susan, I find a lot of women that, you know, are my peers or women that have had, you know, journeys like you and I have, it really resonates with them. And, yes. and even men will say, you know, I read your book and I just made me think of all of my hurdles I had to overcome. So I didn't know that that would be an outcome of the book, mm-hmm. but the book was to share a story that, as my dad said, you should have called it against all odds because it really was very challenging. And I think that many people, um, when I tell them how and where I came from, they're surprised that I was able to persevere as a mother, having three children, you know, working, traveling once a week and leaving my babies and doing everything I did, you know, building in the support that I did. I think it was really starting my own business. (laughs) That was, I was insane. You know, my kids were five, seven and nine and I was like, oh, this won't be that hard. So I think that at the end of the day, you want to share, if you can, encourage others that there are people like you and I that mm-hmm. have, in fact, successfully had it all, you know, yeah. and, and that it's possible. And, and how did you do it? Tell me your yeah. story. So like now I talk to women and I actually had a conversation with a woman last night who has two little girls that are nine and 12 and she was telling me her story. So it really is fun to have opportunities now to hear other people's stories that mm-hmm. that the book stimulates. Yeah, I mean, that's what we do in the podcast. You know, you're talking about your story, I have my story, and we relate it. But then I also try to tell women, okay, this happened, so what did you do? In other words, here's what we did that worked, here's what we did that didn't work, maybe. And what I find, I mean, to a woman that I've talked to in this podcast, and you're a big example of this, is how adaptable we are, you know, to whatever happens, to whatever whatever we need to do, we do. And I got that from my family too. And that you just you just get armor up, you just get it done. You know, you know what you need to do. And you and your husband David, you know, did that in raising your kids together. But I thought it was interesting about the housing market. It was what was so such a small part of the economy that you became an expert in became a huge part of the economy in the mid-2000s. And um, when I was in an investment department at a life insurance company, we used to call them Solly, Solomon. Uh, When when you were with Solly, you were an outsider. You were, number one, you were a woman. And number two, you didn't go to an Ivy League school. So, But you were, I guess in the book, I, I had the I was so impressed with, you know, just how driven and ambitious you were. Not only that, but just so curious. You know, you would ask anybody anything so you could advance your knowledge, you know, and you, and that and when you do that, when young people do that, they become experts, right? Yeah, and I don't think it's just so much asking questions. I think that connecting with people. I think, you know, I tell my children when you meet someone, you look them in the eye and you shake their hand and you better shake it good. Don't break their hand, but shake their hand firmly. Mm-hmm. And I think that asking people to tell you about themselves and even to this day, as I meet industry executives that are in housing or housing related areas, 
you know, you don't just go straight to business. Like, you know, most analysts that are trying to understand what's happening within their industry from a competitive landscape perspective, or if they're just trying to learn specifically about the company and their strategy, they'll just dig right in. And a lot of times people are taken back, you know, because it's um, goes from, you know, zero miles an hour to hundred miles an hour. And you got to warm people up. Right. Like, so tell me your story. Like where, how did you get to the role you're in today? And do you have children? You have to find a way to connect with people. Yes. You know, whether I was 25 years old and I'm talking to, you know, people twice my age, you know, they might, I might say, well, you know, where'd you go to school? And, you know, my husband's a huge Buckeye fan. So I can always talk football and, you know, through mm-hmm. osmosis and also growing up one of three girls, my dad was a huge Giants fan growing up and, you know, taught me how to play golf. And I think I was the tomboy. And what I realized in networking with people is that once they recognize that you are, you know, just like they are just another person and you find a way, whatever it may be, it could be the music you like, it could be the books you read, it could be the sports you you play. There has to be some type of connection. And then the business stuff becomes easy because they you're not just calling them to bombard them with questions about their business. You're actually connecting with them on a level that's personal. Mm-hmm. And that's been the lesson to many. And so I'll talk to young women, you know, that are at my alma mater or they're at other universities or even high school. And they're just hesitant. I don't want to bother anybody. I don't want to really ask them. And I'm like, ask away. Right. People want to tell their story. They want you to ask about them. And the more you ask, they'll say, oh my God, that woman was awesome. Yeah. That young lady is so, so incredible. And, you know, half the time or more than half the time they were talking. Right. It's really, it's relationship building. And that's, that's how I've been successful in my career. One reason is just really getting to know my clients and then liking them, having them like me. And uh, I think I see that your career has benefited a great deal by all of these relationships you've made. And you talk about networking being a way of life and Uh, making sure that the gatekeeper of the guy you want to talk to, the person you want to talk to, you know that person, and that person likes you, it can be a real advantage. And you do something else I do. I remember birthdays. I call and text my clients on their birthdays. Not many people Mm -hmm. do that. You do. Absolutely. And I think it's too, it's, um, you know, I think what I'm incredibly proud of are the relationships I've had since, you know, I was in middle school and all the way up through college and whether men and women that I've stayed friends with, I think it takes work. And it's not just the work related to your friendships. I think that that sort of was, you know, the glue that kept me together is the bonds I have with many women that I've been friends with since seventh, eighth grade, but it's the same um, sort of strategy within the business community. So you meet people, you follow up right away, you send an email and you're responsive and you continue to contact them on a, on a, ongoing basis. It's not one and done. And I think many people don't follow up. And if someone meets me and they actually are interested in, you know, learning more about what we do, or we have a conversation, if I don't get an email after that conversation from them, and they were interested in working at my firm, you know, that's just unacceptable. And I'm not necessarily, you know, suggesting that you have to do it that day, but I'm in I have, I live by three tenets of my life. Number one, humility. Number two, integrity. And number three, responsiveness. And people that, I mean, I always think someone either they, they're in the hospital or they're dead if they don't email me back. So I, I, because of that 
sort of strategy I've had in my life and humility, I, I find myself really able to connect with many people. And, you know, today, when you think about relationships, again, whether it be my best friends growing up or the new friends that I meet or um, the business executives that I interact with, I think it becomes the relationship first and, and, and cementing it on an ongoing basis. So one of the challenges I have now is that when I first started out, I get a notepad and I would call private home builders. The good news is for me, the industry was so fragmented back in 1992, when I first started studying the industry, there was probably the publicly traded companies accounted for less than 10% of the market. Yeah. Today, they represent 42% of the market. So it was a very easy thing to call up a private home builder that you'd meet at a, a trade uh, association or you'd meet them at an industry conference. And I'd scribble on a piece of paper and I would learn and, and you know ask them questions about the industry and how, what they're seeing in the market. And the same thing in building products and mortgage and at brokers. But today we have over a thousand C-suite executives that we interact with that are on our platform. So I can't talk to everyone as much as I did, but I still make a concerted effort to call and connect Mm -hmm. and email and do catch up calls. And I almost, I was horrified because one of my analysts that they're required, or we have 12 analysts to do the same thing. So now I can't, I don't, I sit within an organization that someone is more responsible, you know, individuals are responsible for different areas within our um, ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And I was listening. I wanted to hear how he did with an executive in a building product manufacturer. And these guys are old boys, you know, old school, you know, could be they're in a factory manufacturing facility out in rural America somewhere. And this guy's like, um, you know, hi, Joe, it's uh, Justin just calling to, you know, check in. How's business? And I, I thought I was going to pass out. I was like, after the call was over, I'm like, Justin, you don't just ask him out, but how about asking him first, is this a good time to chat? And, you know, if you have a few minutes and how was your weekend? You know, what have you been up to? How's life? Right. Did you go on any vacations recently? Connect. And so I, I, so that's what I'm teaching the people that work for me, but to recognize that that to me has been my secret, secret sauce. It really has. Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah. I was, I've impressed with that. And I've seen that in young people sometimes that, uh, some of the stuff they just don't don't always get, but that's what we're here for, right? To pass it along. Right. <laughs> we're going right. to get into some uh, career things here that I'm going to ask you about, but just talk about your family. Um, I know some of this from the book, your husband, David, and you have three children, Zoe, Zach, and Z- uh, Zia, and uh, all names starting with Z's. So talk about your family and how your marriage, you know, has helped your career. Well, I'd say that... Um my children are my life. You know, it's if when you, you know, unfortunately we all are not going to live forever. So when you have on your tombstone, it should say Ivy Zellman, the housing analyst, or hopefully it says Ivy Zellman, beloved mother. And that's the most important thing to me. And it's been, you know, hopefully what they know and feel on a daily basis. And I think being, um, you know, a professional and a mother you know, you have to make sacrifices and there's times you can't be at every, you know, sporting event or every, you know, performance and it's painful, you know, it's really painful to make those tough decisions. So for my family, um, you know, I do everything I can to make them know that they're a priority and to be in touch with them on a daily basis. And now that they're out of the house, you know, it's even more important, but growing up, I talked to them like they were 40. You know, I, I'd never thought of them as little people, you know, I just treated them like I would, 
treat a colleague and teaching them along the way. And even at dinner, you know, David and I would sit around the table and one of our, you know, traditions is every night we talk about our favorite part of the day and what we're grateful for. And we'd always go around the room, even if we were like in fighting or whatever, we'd always wind up with this summary of the dinner. Um, and, and I think that that was a fun thing to do. And, you'd, you know, they'd say, mom, were the stocks red or green today? You know, so they, and, you know, this is them assumingly could be as young as like nine, 11. Um, so I think that the connection I have with them is, is incredible. And I spend a lot of time and effort. So, you know, you're exhausted, you've long day, come home off a plane. All you want to do is be alone and go watch TV and, and, you know, a TV, go watch Netflix. Back then it wasn't Netflix, whatever the hell it was. You just wanted to be alone. Go, go take your makeup off, get on, out of that, you know, your damn suit and just be alone. And you got these kids that, you know, are, are not happy with you because you've been gone. And now you've got to go upstairs, get them to bed, read them a story, sing them a song. And after all that, then individually hang out with them for each like 10 minutes. And it was work. It was work. But I will tell you, Susan, the nights that I would sit on that couch and I knew it was time to go up there, time for bed. And I would drag myself off the couch. It was the best part of my night. Once I was up there, it's kind of like going to the gym, you know, when you, you finally are done with the workout, but I, I could go up there and we'd be laughing and, you know, Zia would come and she'd hear me and Zoe laughing. And then we're laying on their bed together and the dog's on the bed and my son, my son would come in. So it was always, you know, for me, the priority with the kids and no matter what I did. And I think most proud of the thing that I would share to any of you young mothers out there or prospective mothers that I, I started when Zoe was 11 months old and it was before 9-11 because I thought it might've been because of 9-11, but the dates just don't correlate. So in July of 2001, she was 11 months old and I started writing a journal and Hey Zoe and tell her about what she did that day. And she played with, and I had a superstition because I'm Meshuggah that I would get on a plane. And if I don't write in their books, then I'm going to die. So I had like this necklace that I, oh, I'm actually wearing my necklace. Like you can see it, but this necklace, if I didn't fly, I'm going to die. And so, you know, you know, I'm nuts. So when Zoe was born, it was 11 months old and Zach and Zia went literally when I came home from the hospital and I've never stopped writing in their books. And when Zoe turned 21, um, I couldn't be with her in Miami. She goes to university of Miami and I just felt horrible about it. And I felt, you know, like, what am I going to do for her birthday? Shit. So I had this epiphany at four in the morning, I'm going to give her her books. Cause the kids would always, he knew about the books, but you know, and my husband, my son will always say, Oh God, I'm going to have to hire a translator because you're chicken scratch. But you know, they're like half the size. There's little books that I bought at Barnes and Noble. And I said to Zoe, I have a birthday present for you. And she came in my room and she's, you know, five, seven gorgeous. And I just said, I want to give you for your birthday, your books. And I never told them when I'm going to do it. Are they, when they graduate college when they get married and we just were, she was crying and, and we were laughing, reading the books a little together. And it's just such a gift to give my children. And I was diligent about it. So I did write every time I, before I got an airplane. Yeah. And not a lot, said, but it's something to really contemplate to do. I would highly recommend it. Yeah. sounds like a great, great practice. You said Meshuggah. Do I have that Yiddish word, right? <laughs> that is Meshuggah means nuts, which nuts. I am. Okay. Yeah. Me too. You're in good company. <laughs> That's why we, we, we're bonding. Yes. 
Uh, and it sounds like David, I mean, you're you know, in the book, you throughout the book, David's really been supportive of you and your career. He just sounds like a very good partner. Yeah, I think David early on, I what I really connected with him on was he wasn't someone that like, you know, men will give you the business card and, you know, try to impress you with their career. He didn't even carry business cards and he never cared about labels. You know, he went to Ohio State. He was also a Wall Streeter was, we met at Solomon Brothers, but early on, he was really instrumental as a mentor to me. It was funny. We were friends and he was assigned to me as my buddy. The, the sales, each um, salesperson was assigned to our equity research analyst as a new program they were trying to get the analyst to learn how to really provide client service from mm-hmm. a salesperson's perspective. And so really he took me under his wing and he taught me not only a lot about um, how to be a good analyst, but how to talk to my boss when it came to comp. And yes. To not to not accept the unacceptable, and to be stronger and thicker skin, and so you know, it, really a rabbi to me that would, you know, help me through really tough times and 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 being there for the kids and allowing for me to be you know the the primary breadwinner and not having an ego about it yeah. and being okay with it. He was he wasn't a house husband. Let me tell you that we had a nanny. I had two nannies at one time. My nanny when my I was pregnant with number three who had been with me since the days I was born. She's like, no way am I going to deal with three kids. So that's when my sister came into the picture and yeah. worked for her. So I think David was just fortunately a great mentor and his humility when it came to being with a strong woman wasn't um, something that, you know, I think most men couldn't handle. Like my father, you're going to laugh. My father at our wedding um, who I adore and I was the best man in his wedding. He's married to uh, a wonderful woman for 28 years. But at my wedding, he said, you know, she couldn't find a man. She looked high and low. She looked in the US. She looked in Europe. She looked in Asia. And thank God she finally some, found someone that could put up with her. So I was like, thanks, dad. You know, was I think I got that, that reflection yeah. as well. Uh, I love the part in the book about him when you were ready to do your report on the housing industry. He said, I guess you were nervous and flushed. He says, why is your neck so red? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh God. He yeah. was very observant. Yes. Very observant. <laughs> I always did. I, I always broke out in a rash, like right either not like, you know, itchy rash, just redness and yes. blotchy. Yeah. I know. And I like, have friends obviously that like that. <laughs> nerves. Um, fortunately yeah. it doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> yeah. Good. I, I don't see, I don't see, uh, any red in your, in your okay, neck there. Good. Um, 2005 through 2007, you were bearish on on the housing market. Your research said that we were in a bubble, and you continued to report on it. And I remember this time in the industry, we have parallel industries. Um, We couldn't pick up a Wall Street or turn on the radio station without hearing about the housing bubble, and yet the housing market continued to boom. and the house of cards were being, you know, built and it hadn't tumbled down yet. But I mean, all of this, you know, it's all in the big short. And of course, you advised on that. But just uh, these loans that um, people buying houses that really had no business buying houses didn't have the credit. And um, so you had predicted this and it was going on. It's just that, you know, it continued to go on um, and you were criticized, but you were right. You, you stuck to your views. Just talk about this time in your career and um, what you learned, you know, what you learned from it and what your values were. You know, I think that having conviction 
with respect to any um, call you are, are making as an analyst really stems from the underlying fundamental work that you've done. So fortunately for me, as I alluded to, we have a lot of private industry contacts that were supporting sort of our thesis in, in addition to the data aggregation that we were accumulating. When you talk to CEOs in private sectors and they're telling you, this is nuts. You know, I went and, you know, basically I'm buying a piece of land that there's no way if I bought it that I can pencil a return on it. And there's a guy there that bought it and I call him because he used to work for me. And he's like, well, how the hell did you pencil that? How, how can you justify buying that? And the guy's like, well, if I don't, I won't have a job. Or you talk to another guy who's a mortgage broker and he's talking about a loan that he just wrote to a guy who graduated law school, but doesn't have a job yet. I'm like, how the hell can you lend someone money when they, how can you approve a mortgage? He's like, I don't care. It's it's a fast and easy loan. Fannie and Freddie will buy it from us. Yep. So when you have the commentary and the ongoing support of people that are boots on the ground, telling you the crazy things that are going on in the market and the amount of investors that were buying and the amount of people that didn't have the incomes. I think that despite being wrong, which it was painful, and there were nights on the couch that I did cry and and I was really down. I mean, builders called me jihad. Uh, there were people that called me poison ivy. Yeah. You know, there used to be people with, with little voodoo dolls that had my face on it. And I actually got threatened like death threat once. Um, and it was a crazy story, but uh, Credit Suisse, it turns out it was like an 80-year-old guy that um, his son was a, a real estate broker and he was, you know, threatened to kill me. Um, but I do think that it was because of the fundamental research we did coupled with the industry executives that continuously told me to hang in there, Ivy, you're going to be right. So I wasn't alone. And my team and my co-founder, Dennis McGill of Zellman Associates, who's been with me since he was a summer intern at Michigan, you know, we and other, other, other team members. So I wasn't on an island, you know, amongst call it half a dozen people that were my team. And we all just encouraged one another. And, you know, despite the stocks going up massively in my face, despite clients not liking my questions on conference calls, and I'd ask, well, what are your average FICO scores? And what are the debt to income ratios? And they're like, why is she asking all these questions about mortgage? Like, you know, it just, it just became almost uh, a force of, of nature for me to, to do what I was doing and I had I couldn't stop it. And I remember there were a lot of people at Credit Suisse that were like, you know, she's gonna ruin her career. Yeah. You know, she's, you know, been so bearish, she's so wrong. So it was hard at times. And there was a lot of people that were betting against me. So it was because of the people around me that were supporting me, um, really not only my team, but again, all these people in my network that were encouraging me to stick to my guns that really mm-hmm. enabled me to do so. Yeah, I mean, it was a really good time in the commercial mortgage banking time. I mean, CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed securities, the spreads were the lowest. You could do loans that were trending rents. You were looking at future rents. I mean, 2005, six, and part of seven uh, were very good years. And it's almost like the party, we didn't want the party to be over, you know, but we knew there was going to be an end to it. And it's like, when do you put your hand up and say, I refuse to participate in this party? It's madness. We're all there. We know it's going right. on. We just don't know. Nobody likes the sober person at the party. No, Nobody no. wants right. the, hey, the party needs to end or this is not going to end nice and end well. Right. They don't want to hear it. Yeah. And I remember exactly where I was. And I think it was around July 2007 when I had a 
uh, quote, a proposal from a CMBS lender, and the spreads had gone up 40 basis points, like in a day. And I thought, oh, this is this is big. This is the start mm-hmm. of something. And that's about the time that, um, you know, it just really, we started to see cracks in it. My son always says to me, so mom, when did you, when was the moment of vindication for you? And to be honest with you, it was when New Century filed in March of 2007 bankruptcy. That was when the market, this wasn't just a, a, you know, a small correction because the housing stocks, the home builders in July of 05, we published a report called Investors Gone Wild. And we had a thousand people on our conference call. And so anyone looking at home building as a sector, new construction was um, experiencing what was the beginnings of inventories were starting to rise and it was impacting new construction's ability to sell. And we're seeing incentives prevalent in the market and just buyer fatigue and pushback and their demand was slowing. So from 05 to 06, really July of 05 to the fall of 06, the stocks got crushed. Not every part of obviously the housing market, but home building stocks. And I remember in 06, my um, head of product management at Credit Suisse is like, you know, take a victory lap. The stocks are at their trough. You should just be vindicated. And I was like, absolutely not. And the stocks went up in my face 40%. And December of 06, in 10 minutes, Dennis and I banged out a report called 10 Reasons to Sell Home Building Stocks. And we just kept piling on our negative call, piling on. And we felt incredibly vindicated when New Century filed. And you don't want anybody and all those people lost their jobs. It sounds horrible. But that was the moment, the true telling that the housing market Mm -hmm. was crashing. Sure. Yeah. Well, I didn't. I don't know if it was the perfect time to start your company or the absolute worst time, but October of 2007 is a very interesting time to start your own company. So you're like, hey, let's let's go out on our own since now we everybody can see that we've been right, you know, <laughs> right? Well, it, in all fairness, we just celebrated October 3rd was our 14th anniversary. But when you look at the timing, it started really probably in the second half of 05 when I started contemplating going on my own. And part of it was that I built this incredible network and the time is probably 300 companies that were really my, um, you know, gut check pulse, you know, Mm -hmm. boots on the ground. But the other aspect of it was that I only followed home building and building product stocks. And I was getting in trouble because I was writing about the mortgage industry. So I wrote a piece called mortgage, um, liquidity du jour, underestimated no more. And, you know, the analyst that covered Fannie and Freddie was pissed off. They're like, she's writing the shit. She shouldn't be able to write that. And then the strategist who was writing on home prices didn't like that I was saying home prices would go down. So I was getting into like, you know, fights with the other analysts. And I thought, you know what, if I go on my own, I can hang my own shingle. I can do exactly what I'm doing right now. And I can take my industry contacts and I can do more than just home building and building products. And I didn't want to deal with the bureaucratic crap anymore. You know, I'd been working on Wall Street for 15 years and I was ready for a change. I turned 40. It was like, okay, let's do this. So we actually left Credit Suisse. Um, I took four people with me in May of 07, but there was a non-compete for six months, non-solicit for two months. So um, in October, we opened the door. So, it, and you know, I didn't even think about it, honestly. Didn't even dawn on me that you know the economy's you know uh, spiraling into a severe recession, but we we were needed more than ever. 
everyone that was focused on the world became housing became center stage and everything was about the housing market. So here you have these institutional investors. I'm not sure, Susan, what you did to see if you would successfully start a business and and be able to um, have actual clients. But I circled quietly, you know, call it a dozen clients where I'd call them up and say, hey, if I went on my own, would you would you become a client? And by doing so, which was a little bit of due diligence, I felt, you know, worst case, I'll, I'll get a job. And that was sort of the rationale. But I didn't think about the economy and the state of the nation's, you know, risk of being in a recession. And it worked out well. Yeah. Now, you, I started my company at the age of 40. And I, I knew that I developed enough relationships to bring them on my own. But I always had a fallback, you know, and that's what you're saying about starting a company. And a lot of a lot of people, some women, you know, don't have they're scared, you know, and naturally you're scared. It's just part of the thing. It's it's a fear. You know, we have fear. I, I was scared. I fortunately, though, had Dennis and I had David, David, who initially was like, you're nuts. You make a lot of money. You know, you're like the queen of credit suites. You can do whatever you want. And I was like, I, I don't I want to do this, David. And once I said I wanted to do it, then he was willing to help me. Yeah. And I think step up and do a lot of the called back office things that, you know, make sure you get paid uh, things that I didn't have to think about at Credit Suisse right. and hiring and HR. And it was much more challenging than I had expected, but I was really scared. And mm-hmm. I think that Dennis was also pushing me hard to do it. So I, again, I always go back to, you know, people like to say it's team Ivy, you know, and I think that if you don't, if you attempt things alone, so I don't know what you were, what you did, but if it hadn't been for this really strong, loyal, collaborative mm-hmm. team that was had my back, my you know soulmate of my life was a woman named Melinda Greenwich, who was my secretary, starting at Solly, and you know she came with me and she pushed me to do it, you know, and every day would encourage me, and my sister would encourage me, and so it's it's the people in your life that matter mm-hmm. to you that right. are there as your foundation, mm-hmm. and therefore it, it took some of that fear away, yeah. and again. I'm sure you have a similar story. I had, You're never I had alone. a team. Yeah, no, I, my husband right. was pushing me. I had a team. I had partners. So they were all they were all there with me. Um, same yeah. same thing. Um, let's move on to some, you know, sort of the gender bias of this. You and I have had long careers. We've seen a lot. I saw. I read the stories in the book. They're they're great. I'm like nodding my head. I I, I have experienced the same thing. A number of women, this is a topic I'd like to talk to you about, a number of women in the podcast uh, have given glowing reports of uh, other women helping them succeed. And I've had that experience where women have helped me in my career, but my experience has not always been good. You know, that um, I, you know, I have had experiences where women are not not on my team. They're not supporting me. And almost to the point where they're they're doing things that actually hurt me, you know, and you've had that experience. And talk about talk about that in in your experience. And what would you say about women who, you know, are out there and that don't really help other women succeed? Yeah, it's it's kind of mind boggling when you think about it. And I think that it's we're climbing this ladder and we're struggling so much to succeed in a man's world that maybe women think that the other women might get in their way. Like it's so cutthroat that by 
befriending or supporting another woman could negatively impact their own career. So you really didn't see a lot of women going out of their way to help one another. And I would say that I was somewhat surprised by that, but remember there were very few women yes. that were in, in the business. So, but they certainly didn't go out of their way to take you kind of pull you under the wing right. and say, Hey, you know, let me help you. Um, actually men were more likely to be those, yes. um, those people, mm-hmm. but you know, there were some women, more peers that, you know, I also found to be incredibly supportive. My friend, Chris Kiska, who was um, at Solly in the two-year training program, we sat side by side in cubicles and, you know, there were many bathroom, bathroom, you know, we'd go to the bathroom and then one of us would be crying and something would have happened. So we had each other and, you know, there were some really long days and having, you know, friends like that. But when it came to my girlfriend, Laura, who worked in high yield, and literally every day I'd go on the morning call and then she'd practice with me and help me. So I don't want to say that there weren't women that were willing to help you, but it was more, more, more of your peer, uh, that, and friends, as opposed to just like you would think the women that were a little bit senior to you, I think they felt threatened by me, frankly, because I was so aggressive and clearly ambitious and that that was a threat to them being queen bee and center stage. That's right. So I'd like, I wish we can change that, but because there's such a minority of women, I think that that's the fear that we're going to take away from one another rather Mm -hmm. than combine and be a force to reckon with, you know, women are afraid to, to lose the attention, I think. Yeah. And I think men, I don't know if it's how we're socialized as children or exactly what it is, but they seem to look out for each other in ways that we, we don't always look out for each other. You know, there's a little bit of a bro culture. I'll take care of you. You take care of me. And they have advantages in that. And I wish we could do it more. Yeah. No, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the things that really inspired me to write the book. Mm-hmm. And I do work with a lot of women. And my daughters went to same-sex um, schools. And I worked with the investment clubs, the finance centers, Um continue to work with women in finance now at universities and really encourage women. And so many are timid and and shy or not willing to speak up. And, you know, I want to see the passion in their eyes. I want them to speak up. I want them to ask questions. And I think that maybe it was the way, you know, our upbringing and dealing with, you know, our role in society, Mm -hmm. but, you know, being a tomboy and one of three girls and an incredible father who really taught me to go for anything I wanted to do in my life, mm-hmm. I think that gave me the strength to, to not be afraid to speak up. And I think that that's what women need to know is that they, they can be one of the guys yeah. and they don't have to, you know, shy away from conversations. And I don't know about you again, we won't use bad language on the podcast, but the guys like, you know, at, at Solomon brothers, when, you know, there were 70 analysts in my training program yeah. and there were three women and, I I would just say that a lot of these guys would would go out and get wasted and show up late to work. Like they'd come in instead of, you know, yeah. being there, I don't know, in investment banking, we had to be there, call it eight, eight thirty, whereas research are there by six thirty seven. You know, it's pretty different. Right. But in in investment banking, so the guy would walk in, call it 10, 30, 11, and the uh, the you know, the managing director would come and put his arm around the guy and say, Tell me what how were you and I? I want to hear what happened. Yeah. You know, God forbid a woman could come yeah. in late. Yeah, he's he's hung over. It's like, oh yeah, I've been out. You know, total double standard. You know, it's just yeah, yeah. totally different. Um, 
I, I thought was an interesting comment. Uh, when you were pregnant with your third child, uh, the chief investment officer made a comment to you. What was it? Oh God, he was such an asshole. Um, <laughs> so I, I walked into um, the chief investment officer's office at a hedge fund. And this was my last trip for many of you women that have had children, you know, that after a certain period, you're not allowed to, to travel. Right. And I sat down and, and he said, you know, um, how far along are you? And I told him, and he said, is this your first? I said, no, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm gotten pretty good at this. My third. And I said, I have two more at home that are, you know, at that time there were two and four and he goes, and that's where you should be. You shouldn't be sitting here. You should be sitting with them. You have no place being here. Right. And I kind of was, I honestly was stunned, Susan. Yeah. I didn't even know what to say. And I looked up at my salesperson who was with me this guy, Steve, and, and I was hoping he would say something, but he didn't. They don't. And I look back at the client. I'm like, well, do you still want to chat about housing? And I just kind of, and we wound up chatting about housing, but I thought to myself, I was really like, almost like a little dizzy, like yeah. feeling like this, this, it like somebody and, hits you with a, something. yeah, yeah. It's kind of like being slapped across the yeah. face yeah. and, you know, just feeling so uncomfortable. Would you have said anything and, differently yeah, today? But, but you do persevere and you yes. do continue. Right. Um, that's a good question. What I know now, of course, I would have said something like that. You know, that's totally inappropriate. No. Asshole. Right. And he got up and walked out. But, you know, when I'm at the time, 38 years old or 37 years old, and and I'm sitting here looking at this important man and know that it it's a big client of the firms. No, I, I probably yeah. wouldn't have done anything yeah. different. Yeah. No, you. Yeah. You got to take it. But then you you went right on. You kind of like almost showed him that it didn't, you know, you you probably kept poker face, you know, did bother you. But it's like you went on. Well, do you want to talk about housing? Because I'm not going yeah. home right now. <laughs> right. Exactly. And and he did. So yeah. it kind of was like he gave me that day and, and we moved on. You moved on. Um, during your time at Solomon as an analyst in your 20s, you write in the book about experiencing um, sexual harassment. Um and on page 27, you say that was a time when women who were harassed in the workplace were almost always viewed as being at fault rather than being victims. If a woman dared to voice concern over how she was being treated, it was not support she was given, but the burden of shame. Yes. Yeah. I think the hardest thing now looking back, which I'm really um, admittedly angry about, is that when it was brought to human resources attention, which had actually happened not, not on purpose. I thought he was giving me a bad review. It turns out he wasn't. Um, and all of a sudden the guy that was the coordinator of reviewing the 70 analysts, he raised it to HR. I'm like, Oh no, I don't want you to do anything. Cause I was so worried that I'd be shamed. Right. So I'm sitting, I'm sitting in this conference room with the head of investment banking, my boss, my managing director, human resource, probably like 15 people in a room and me. And this is how they handled it. They basically said, we'd like to move you out of the transportation team in a different part of corporate finance. And I, and I kind of now in hindsight only had the epiphany that, you know, I thought they, wow, I can't believe it's 1991. And they actually took the time to deal with this as opposed to just not even paying attention to it, but they wanted to move me and I wouldn't let them because I felt that I would be shamed and I would be labeled for the rest of my life as this woman who was sexually harassed as opposed to just being Ivy. And, but in hindsight, 
They should have fired his ass. They should have. Like, why, why, that why do you have to move? You know, because why did I have to move? But, right. I, you know, the crazy part is that it wasn't until even writing the book that it made, I realized that. Like, yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, it is. And now today, you know. He'd be fired. He'd be he fired. would be fired, you know. Yes. Um, and he should have been fired. He should have sure. been fired. Definitely. Um, but, you know, I, I had a time in my career when I was young and cute and, uh, Frankly, <laughs> you're still cute. Well, still cute. you know, I'm not young anymore, though. <laughs> I might, I might pass for some somehow uh, cute for my age or whatever. But I, I would rather be a veteran and and regarded as an expert. What do you, What do you think? Same thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that having, you know, being attractive or being personable, you you can utilize, you know, your full persona to mm-hmm. your advantage. So I don't, you know, I don't discourage like some of the women don't like necessarily me to say this, but I have chatted with women in finance and there's, it's nothing wrong with, you know, looking good and, and, yeah. a, you know, a fitted dress or being uh, a sexy, even it's, there's nothing wrong with looking like a woman, <laughs> you know, we shouldn't yeah, have to wear mm-hmm. pantsuits or, you know, be, be sort of bullied into this idea that our femininity is negative. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree. And I've, you know, I, you know, wear makeup, do my hair and everything. I want to go into the office looking attractive. I'm not trying to to get any kind of, you know, harassment or comments or anything. I just feel right. like that's who I am. That's what I want to, I need to be camera ready, you know, when I go <laughs> into the office. Uh, well, absolutely. And like some some men, like I think women might get offended if they get a compliment at times. But mm-hmm. to be honest with you, I, I always, I like it. So I do too. You know, the, so yeah. there was a CEO of one of the public home building companies. We were leaving one of my conferences. Um, I was leaving, I should say. It was, I was pregnant with Zia and this was my last trip. And I was leaving the Ritz-Carlton and Laguna Niguel and I'm walking out and the CEO is like, no one's there because everyone's in the ballroom and it's, it's wrapping up and I'm leaving to catch my flight. And he sees me, he's like, you know, you sure look good for a pregnant, your ass looks great for a pregnant woman or something. And I said, thank you. And it didn't offend me. And now I look back on that and say, that was probably offensive. But to me back then, I was like, damn, I, that's nice. I like, you that know, he said you know what he means, good. you know, your, you know, your butt looks good. It doesn't look really wide when you're pregnant. I mean, that's a good stuff. Right, you know? You know? <laughs> but I would just say, you know, on one hand, and then I remember when I was pregnant with Zoe, and I was crossing, you know, Madison Avenue and some truck driver screamed at me, move your fat ass, bitch. And I was like, oh, so, so appalled because, yeah. you know, I gained 50 pounds or whatever. But I don't know. I think that I I have very thick skin and I don't really find it offensive if men are complimentary to me. Mm-hmm. But maybe, you know, telling me I look good, you know, a CEO, maybe from him, someone would say, well, that's terrible. That's inappropriate. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of thing, like, shake it off. Like, if you're not being sexually harassed, yeah. I mean, which which I was, and not and more than not only the story I told, but not enough, like, significant enough. Like, that was a big deal, like, where it's kind of on the margin. I say we just have to really delineate what's truly sexual harassment and inappropriate from maybe just compliments. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I don't want to dismiss the con- comment of the fellow that talked about your that your butt looked good when you were pregnant because that that is that is going beyond what we should be doing in the workplace okay but i think what i hear you saying is 
come on, let's lighten up a little bit, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, in the 80s and 90s, this stuff went on all the time. And maybe I tolerated it a little bit too much, but I did kind of join in and tell, you know, off-color jokes. You know, I was trying Mm -hmm. in my attempt to be one of the guys, you know, so I, I could do better and have a, you know, and uh, get the more I get along with them, the better my career is going to be. And maybe that was going along. I don't know, but I just didn't, you know, I, I was a lot lighter about it uh, and not as serious, I guess. And I'm sure you and I now realize that we didn't even think about it. No, it was just it's what sort we of did day to day. Yeah. And, and there today was... it's different. I would, yeah, I think about it differently and uh, I've, I've changed my perspective. Um, yes. Well, as we wrap up here, I wanted to get in to talking about your you know, breast cancer diagnosis and the surgeries and things, but people will have to buy the book and, and uh, uh, read about that because it's inspiring. And uh, I know it's been, you know, uh, you've had some rough times there with some of the surgeries and it's affected your ability to play golf and so forth. Yeah. So buy the book. It's, it's really, I couldn't put it down. Um, but well, last you, question of you, Ivy, is, uh, and this is important to me too, is my girlfriends. You know, talk about the benefit of having girlfriends in the busy, busy life you've had and the excellent career, you know, how, what they've meant to you. You know, I think that really my girlfriends are the glue that keep me together. And, you know, I just got back from Dublin on a girl's trip. And, you know, it takes effort when you're working mothers uh, or your stay-at-home moms to actually make the time to go on trips or just go to dinner or go Mm -hmm. to lunch or chat on the phone. You're busy, but you got to make the time. And these women, there's been so many tears. Oh my God. And we, some of my girlfriends, my girlfriend, Jennifer, who's like a new friend that I met 15 years ago, you know, we could be on the phone for an hour and talk about everything, you know, from our kids to our you know, nasty husbands of the day and whatever fight we're in. And, you know, it's always there. Uh, we're, we're there for one another to vent, but the importance of it is because you can be so vulnerable and real with them mm-hmm. and, and having that connection with, with other women, I think is really essential to push you forward. Mm-hmm. So I've invested a lot of time in my friendships and, you know, other people I know that will say, you know, I don't, I don't have friends from, high school that I've really stayed in touch with or people that I knew growing up. And it doesn't mean that you can't meet new friends now. That's right. But I just think that it takes effort and they're so important to me. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this trip, we laughed, we drank way too much and we just giggled and laid around in our rooms together and, you know, felt like we were back in, in, in high school, but those are important. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and I took uh, my kids and and two of my girlfriends that I met uh, when I lived in England and my sister, we all went to London together with the kids in 15. Mm-hmm. And it was really such an a, a amazing, remarkable opportunity for the kids to get to know each other. So it's been, um, you know, one of the most important things in my life to, you know, combine the friends with the kids and really making that time to show them how important they are to me and how, how much they impact me on a daily basis. Yeah, I agree. Well, Ivy, thank you. Um, thanks for joining me on Leading She today. It's been great. It's been great getting to know you. I've done a lot of research. I loved reading the book. Gimme Shelter is the name of the book, Ivy Zellman. And uh, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Susan. Great podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.